Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Man Trash and the Murders, Part 3. The Guilty and the Innocent. This is the final part in the series on the mysterious and brutal murder of five people, all from the one family, in a remote corner of Connacht in 1882. If you haven't heard the first two parts, they're well worth checking out. They look at the murders themselves and the trials that followed. In today's show, we pick up the story in December 1882 as eight men who have been sentenced to death face the gallows. We will look at what happened to these eight men, who was innocent and who was guilty, which is far from straightforward, given the trials have been based on false testimonies. Life in Galway Jail, at the best of times, was monotonous and lonely. The prisoners spent long hours in cold, damp cells. In winter, the gas lamps that lit the prison through the 16 hours of darkness each day provided little by way of comfort. The lonely sounds of the Atlantic winds howling through the exercise yards added to this sense of isolation from the world and the lives the prisoners had once known. However, in mid-December 1882, this changed temporarily. The drab atmosphere of the prison was replaced with a mixture of macabre anticipation and dread. The sound of workmen erecting a gallows now echoed through the prison as the execution date of Galway Jail's most notorious residents, the convicted Mamtrasna murders, approached on December the 15th. These executions were controversial. Many believed at least some of those sentenced to hang were innocent. Indeed, whether it was fear, superstition or not wanting to be associated with a miscarriage of justice, the tradesmen of Galway wanted nothing to do with the hangings. The prison authorities had to go all the way to Dublin to find a blacksmith and carpenters willing to build the scaffold. While these men set to work, a wave of uncertainty surrounded the whole affair. No one knew exactly how many men would eventually hang. Eight had been sentenced to death but five had been convicted of a supporting role in the murder and the judge had recommended their sentences be commuted to life in prison. Nevertheless, as December the 15th approached, the gallows was erected with eight hooks, one for each man. Two days before the hanging, however, the decision was made. The five who had played the supporting role would be spared and their sentences were commuted to 20 years in prison. This left three men, Miles Joyce, Patrick Joyce, 
and Patrick Casey, who had all been convicted of entering the house and brutally killing John Joyce, his wife, his mother, his son, his daughter, and trying to kill his youngest son. However, even of these men, Manny suspected one of them, Miles Joyce, to be innocent. Some were moved by an open letter his wife Bridget had written to the Freeman's Journal, where she addressed the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, pleading for her husband's life. Her letter claimed, I publicly confess from high heaven that he never committed that crime, nor left his house on the night. The five prisoners that pleaded guilty will declare him innocent. She went on, I earnestly beg and implore His Excellency, the Lord Lieutenant, to examine and consider this hard case of an innocent man. In spite of this, Manny disregarded her words as those of a desperate woman trying to save her husband. However, Ma'am Trasna was a case that never seemed to end. As the execution date approached, there was still time for another major twist. On Wednesday, two days before the hanging, was due to take place. The Galway prison chaplain had received two testimonies that potentially blew the entire case wide open. Two of the three men who were to be hanged admitted their guilt for the first time, but crucially they said the third man, Miles Joyce, was innocent. He hadn't been at the house on the night in question. Furthermore, they said that the evidence presented by three informers who had formed the basis of the prosecution case was false. Finally, to finish off any semblance that the trial had been fair, these two condemned men said that two prisoners who had testified in return for their freedom were completely unreliable. The first of these, Anthony Philbin, had not even been at the killing, while the second was arguably even more problematic. They claimed that this witness, a man called Tom Casey, had killed three people in the house, hardly an individual whose evidence could be trusted. This was truly explosive stuff. There was little reason for these two men to lie. They had no motive for making these testimonies. While they said the trial was a farce, they had admitted to their own guilt, guaranteeing whatever happened, they would be executed. Surely the British authorities couldn't proceed with the execution of Miles Joyce. Faced with this evidence, they would need to at least launch an investigation. The prisoners' testimonies were sent to John Points Spencer, the Lord Lieutenant in Ireland. A great-granduncle of Diana, Princess of Wales, Spencer now had Miles Joyce's life in his hands, but he didn't have much time to make his decision. While this storm was brewing, far away in Wandsworth Prison in London, the executioner William Marwood had hanged Charles Taylor, a man who had murdered his wife. After this execution, Marwood set off for Hollyhead in Wales before taking a ferry across to Dublin on the Thursday. His ultimate destination was Galway Prison. Once he landed in Dublin, he was protected at all times by nine policemen. While the arrival of William Marwood added a sense of urgency to Spencer's decision, it was never too late for a stay of execution. In 1881, Marwood had travelled to Ireland and gone all the way to Armagh Jail, only to find out that the man he was due to hang had been pardoned. Indeed, as Marwood made his way to Westland Row Station in Dublin to take the 8pm train to Galway on the Thursday evening, only 12 hours before the execution was due to be carried out, the Lord Lieutenant Spencer was still mulling over what he would do. For Spencer, his decision would have far-reaching consequences. There was no doubt about that. On the one hand, he had these testimonies which couldn't be dismissed. The men admitted their own guilt, pretty much guaranteeing they would hang, and this lended a certain weight to their evidence. 
They had no reason to lie. However, to halt the executions and launch investigations also had consequences and Spencer was already under severe criticism for commuting the death sentence of the first five prisoners. The Leinster Express, for example, had proclaimed There is nothing to justify Lord Spencer's exercise of clemency respecting the five men. Further to this, Queen Victoria herself had been consulted and she was in favour of hanging all eight Mamtrasna men. To stop the hanging of another of these men would certainly be as controversial as the hanging of an innocent man. It was late on Thursday evening that he finally came to his decision. After midnight, just as the mail train carrying the executioner William Marwood pulled into Galway station, a telegram was dispatched carrying the most important of messages for the three prisoners. Two knew they would almost certainly die, but possibly their testimony had saved the third man, Miles Joyce. As the echo of footsteps through the silent prison grew closer and closer to the cells of the three men, surely they knew this was the news they had been waiting for. The tension must have been unbearable. The door of their prison cells swung open and standing before them was the governor himself. The telegram was clear and unequivocal. The Lord Lieutenant's words were, Having considered the statements, I am unable to alter my decision. The law must take its course. The journey of the executioner William Marwood was not in vain. His train reached Galway at 12.30am in the morning and while he was greeted by what the Belfast Telegraph called a mob of loungers, there was no protest or certainly no opposition that his protective escort couldn't handle. The executions would go ahead the following morning. December the 15th, 1882 was a suitably depressing day for an execution. A journalist from the Kildare Observer who had travelled to witness the hanging, described how the morning was quiet in accordance with the awful business it brought about, as it was dark and gloomy whilst rain drizzled gloomily through the frost-covered trees. The three condemned men were woken at six in the morning. Offered a breakfast, all three refused what would have been their final meal. After receiving confession and attending Mass for the last time, they were handed over to the executioner Marwood, who set about his business. While anyone could pull a lever that would collapse the trapdoor beneath the condemned men, Marwood was brought to Galway to ensure the hanging was carried out properly. It was a complicated business that could easily go wrong. Marwood needed to ensure the rope was long enough so the force of the drop would break the neck and kill the prisoner quickly, but not too long which could result in decapitation. Executioners got this wrong with an alarming frequency. Newspaper reports and hangings frequently reported on the length of the drop employed and whether the prisoner struggled. The sun rose late in December, not until after 8am, so it was in cells lit by gaslight that Marwood arrived and personally bound the three men's hands to prevent them from struggling. After 8, the press were led to the yard where the scaffold had been erected and the three men followed soon afterwards. Of the three, two were composed. Patrick Joyce and Patrick Casey had given testimonies admitting their guilt but proclaimed Miles Joyce to be innocent. Perhaps they felt they had made their peace and were ready to die or at least were as ready as anyone could be. Miles Joyce, however, was far less composed. He was agitated. Not only was he going to die an innocent man but also history would remember him as being guilty of one of the worst crimes of the 19th century. As he approached the gallows he shouted constantly in Irish. While most could not understand him, several versions of what he said appeared in the newspapers at the time. The examiner recorded the following translation. 
I am going before God. I was never there. I had no hand or part in it. The Lord forgive them that swore against me. I am as innocent as the child in the cradle. It's a poor thing to take my life at this stage, but I have my priest with me. The executioner, Marwood, placed each man over a trapdoor, bound his feet, and then placed a hood over their head. With Miles Joyce protesting his innocence to the last, Marwood pulled the lever at 8.25am and the three men fell. Patrick Joyce and Patrick Casey died immediately. However, somehow, Miles Joyce's arm got entangled in the rope. William Marwood had to kick down at him through the trapdoor to disentangle him. This continued for two minutes until the executioner was satisfied. Miles had died. As the sun struggled to rise on that winter's morning, a black flag was raised over Galway prison to inform those outside the hanging had taken place and the three men were dead. An hour later, they were cut down and buried inside the walls of the prison. Their execution should have brought the story of Mam Trasna to a close. However, there were too many loose ends and too many controversies remaining. It was increasingly obvious the trials were deeply problematic. The witnesses unreliable. No motive had ever been established. One man, almost certainly innocent, had been executed, while four more serving life sentences were also innocent too. There was simply too much wrong with the case of Ma'am Trasna from start to finish for it to be consigned to history with these hangings. For people who had observed the trials, it was clear that they were problematic from the start. Between the murders in August and the hangings in December, three versions of events had emerged. We have covered these in previous episodes, but I'm briefly going to run through them again because they're very important. The first of these versions, and the one the prosecution rested their case on, was based on the evidence of three informers and two prisoners who were convinced to testify against the other eight men charged with the murder. This version held that 10 men arrived at the Joyce's house on the night of August the 17th to 18th, 1882. The door was broken down and three of the 10 men went inside and carried out the vicious attack on the family. As the trial opened, a second, slightly different variation on this emerged when one of the prisoners, Tom Casey, who testified against the others, said two men not on trial had also been present. Now this meant that some of the men on trial were innocent or the informers were incorrect and there had been 12 men there on the night in question. Finally, after the trials came to an end, a third version of events emerged. This, in my opinion, is the most compelling. It was based on the testimonies of the executed men who had come forward before their execution and admitted their guilt but insisted Miles Joyce was innocent. According to their version, which was radically different, they said there were only seven men there on the night in question. This contradicted the prosecution case and their star witnesses, the two prisoners who had testified for the prosecution. This version stated that one of those, Anthony Philbin, was not even present on the night and had totally fabricated what he said. Of the other prisoner who testified, that's Tom Casey, a man who becomes a central figure going forward. It was claimed that he had killed at least two of the Joyce's. He wasn't exactly reliable. Overall, there clearly were major inconsistencies in the evidence, and as these details began to leak out, it was obvious that Miles Joyce was innocent, and, probably, four of the five men who had had their death sentences commuted to life in prison were also innocent. 
Unsurprisingly, in the following months and years, this miscarriage of justice led to a public outcry that would eventually see Ma'am Trasna debated in the House of Commons as the demands for a public inquiry grew louder and louder. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now, let's get back to Ma'am Trasna and that emerging campaign for justice, which began to unearth some evidence of what truly happened on that terrible night. As early as 1883, only a few months after the execution of the prisoners, Irish nationalist politicians began to highlight the case of Miles Joyce. While the exact details of the overall case of Ma'am Trasna were complex, his case was increasingly straightforward. He had an alibi. His wife had claimed she was with him through the entire night in question. Increasingly, there was a widespread belief that he had been fitted up. Joseph Bigger, an MP for Cavan, did not hold back when he described the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, John Spencer, who had refused to stop Miles's execution as a bloodthirsty old English peer. And he went as far as saying, I will always call Earl Spencer a murderer. He is hanged, an innocent man. However, it was not until 1884 that the case was truly blown wide open and it took one of the star witnesses, that is the prisoner Tom Casey, who testified against the others to admit he had lied. Casey had been there on the night in question but had never been tried because he had testified for the prosecution. After the trial, he appears to have lived something of a miserable life when he returned home. His wife held him in contempt for what he had done but as Catholics they couldn't divorce. Nevertheless, local rumours circulated that the two now slept apart. In 1884, his local priest began to put pressure on him, preaching sermons which contained very thinly disguised attacks on Casey and people who perjured themselves in the case. The pressure grew too much and Casey eventually approached the priest and admitted he had lied. Conveniently, the Archbishop of Tume, John Machiavelli, had just arrived in the area and when he heard Casey's admission, he immediately took action. At Mass on Thursday the 8th of August 1884, the Archbishop Machiavelli got Tom Casey to approach and kneel before the altar, where he admitted in front of the entire congregation he had told lies. This move by the Archbishop was very clever. Had he gone directly to the British authorities, they could have tried to fob him off, and the code of silence around the case would have continued. But instead, he had made it public. Inevitably, word spread about this remarkable event. Within a week, the Freeman's Journal, one of the leading newspapers of the day, had sent a journalist to Ma'am Trasna to investigate this explosive news. There, the journalist met with Casey, who again admitted he had lied. 
He also interviewed the other prisoner, Anthony Philbin, who had testified for the prosecution, and he too admitted he had lied as well. Both Casey and Philbin claimed the Crown Prosecutor, George Bolton, had threatened them that they would hang if they had not agreed to do this. This was major news. Surely now there was hope for the four men languishing in jail who were innocent of the crime. Within days, on August the 11th, 1884, the Irish MPs, Timothy Harrington and William O'Brien, raised this new evidence in the House of Commons. However, as could be expected, the legal adviser to the government, the Solicitor General for Ireland, rejected this saying Philbin and Casey had only changed their story out of fear of their neighbours. These, however, were only the opening salvos in a major fight that was coming. In the following weeks and months, the pressure began to build. The Archbishop of Toome, John Machiavelli, wrote to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland demanding an investigation. Nationalist newspapers continued to highlight the case. It was even getting international attention as the London correspondent of the New York Times, Harl Frederick, visited Mam Trasna. The MP Timothy Harrington even went as far as spending several days in the area conducting interviews, after which he compiled a new case with theories and motives. However, as the pressure began to build for an inquiry into the Mam Trasna case, on the opposite side, the British establishment refused to budge. There was no way the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, John Point Spencer, would admit he had hanged an innocent man. In this, he was supported by George Otto Trevelyan, the Chief Secretary for Ireland. And in case you're wondering, yes, he is the son of Charles Trevelyan, who, as many of you will know, we will become well acquainted with during the series on the Great Famine. The issue reached the crux in October 1884 when a motion was put to the House of Commons demanding a public inquiry. Debated over four days, there were speeches from many of the leading politicians of the day. Randolph Churchill, the father of Winston Churchill, George Otto Trevelyan, Charles Tour Parnell and the Prime Minister of the day, William Gladstone, all took the floor in the House of Commons. Gladstone, the Prime Minister, made the vote about the integrity of John Points Spencer, the Lord Lieutenant, saying that an inquiry into the matter would basically question his honour, and this would not do. Gladstone was also aware that Queen Victoria had been in favour of the executions. A public investigation into Mam Trasna could be extremely damning. When it went to a vote, the motion to hold a public inquiry into the Mam Trasna murders was defeated by 219 votes to 48. An attempt to bring another motion two years later never got off the ground. After this, it became increasingly clear the British state, regardless of the evidence, was not going to move on the issue. Miles Joyce would not get a posthumous vindication. Perhaps even worse, there would be no retrial. The men in prison would stay in prison. For a crime, it was increasingly obvious four of the five of them were innocent of. And sadly, in the coming years, the story began to fade from national attention. In 1895, the first of the Mam Trasna prisoners, Michael Casey, now 73, died in prison. He was guilty by his own admission and probably the only one in prison who actually had been there on the night in question. Five years later, the first innocent man to die in custody, John Casey, passed away in 1900 after 18 years in prison. For his family, the rage and bitterness at the injustice of this must have been all-consuming. They didn't even get his body returned for a funeral. It was finally, two years later, in October 1902, that the last three Mam Trasna prisoners were released, having served their full sentences of 20 years. Almost certainly innocent, they headed back to the west of Ireland, to their homes they had left two decades earlier. 
The last time they had been there was in August 1882, when they had been arrested in the early morning police raids on their homes. Completing the last leg of the journey on foot, the emotion must have been incredible for these three men. Their ordeal was finally over, even if they were scarred by it. However, if they were innocent, we can't close the series without looking at who was guilty and what exactly happened on that awful night in Mam Trasna in 1882 that started these events. Now we know that only three of the eight men convicted of the Mam Trasna murders were guilty. However, from the testimonies, it seems almost certain that there were seven people there on the night in question. That means that at least four people who were guilty were never tried. While normally we would never be able to identify these people now, given the publicity around the case at the time, all seven of the guilty men were named in the 1880s. Or I should really say all seven who were suspected to be guilty because four of them were never tried. In a world where libel laws were somewhat more lax, three newspapers, the Cork Examiner, the Nation and the Freeman's Journal all named the supposedly guilty men. In 1884, the MP Timothy Harrington even published a book where he named those involved. Harrington had spent several days in the area where he interviewed Tom Casey, the prisoner who had testified for the prosecution and had subsequently admitted he lied. Casey was there in the night, there was no doubt about that, and when he spoke to Harrington, he named the others present. The most important of these was a man called Big John Casey, who it was claimed orchestrated the killing. Now, the local police seem to have agreed with this. If you remember back to part one of the series, this man, Big John Casey, had in fact been arrested in the immediate aftermath of the killings. However, once the three informers came forward and said they had witnessed the killings and could identify ten men, none of whom were Big John Casey, he had to be released. In his account, the MP Timothy Harrington also forwarded one thing that had been lacking in the case so far. That was a motive. After interviewing several people in Mam Trasna, Harrington claimed Big John Casey, the victim, John Joyce, and some of those involved in the murder were members of a local secret society. Secret societies were prevalent across the west of Ireland in the 19th century. While they varied from place to place, they often carried out attacks on individuals they believed to have transgressed in some way, shape or form against their community. For example, many assassinations during the land war were the actions of these secret societies. According to Harrington's account, while they had been members of a secret society together, prior to the Mam Trasna murders, tensions between John Joyce, the victim, and Big John Casey had grown, probably over the issue of sheep stealing. This tension had escalated and supposedly John Joyce, the victim, had made three attempts on the life of Big John Casey. Big John had supposedly threatened to go to the police to stop these violent attacks, but then John Joyce had made a fatal error when he threatened, if Casey did this, he would identify the members of the secret society in Mam Trasna in retaliation. This was supposedly what had led to the attacks. Now it is totally plausible. If someone threatened to reveal a secret society, they could easily be killed for this. But like everything in the Mam Trasna case, it doesn't quite fit and it isn't entirely convincing to me. For example, if they were all in a secret society together, it's very unlikely Big John Casey would have threatened to go to the police. He would simply have killed Joyce himself. Furthermore, this version of events heavily relies on an interview with Tom Casey. Tom Casey, one of the prisoners who had testified at the trials, was not entirely reliable and his word cannot be accepted as truth. 
He had motives for changing his story. He lived in the community and understandably wanted to paint himself in the best possible light or the least worst light. Tom Casey did in these interviews though give some minor details about the events that seem accurate to me or at least he had no reason to lie about these things. So according to his account the killers all rubbed black polish on their faces to hide their identity. This is something that Patsy Joyce the sole survivor of the massacre verified. Casey also said the intention from the outset was to kill everyone in the house. Now if this is true I think this is important. If the intention all along had been to kill the entire household, perhaps the motive then wasn't simply about something that John Joyce, the father, had done, but maybe something bigger. Since the murders happened, it has generally been argued that the father, John Joyce, was the target and it was his actions that provoked the attacks. If this was the case, and Joyce was, as suggested, threatening to reveal a secret society, there was no need to kill his entire family. There was undoubtedly numerous opportunities to find him in a remote part of Mount Trasna and simply do him in there. Killing his entire family was always going to draw down a huge amount of attention on the case. For me, I think this could possibly point to a different motive. The different ways the men and women died in the brutal attack seems more than coincidental. The three men were shot while the women were horrifically beaten with hammers. Is it possible that the three women were actually the target of the attack and that John Joyce and his sons were killed because they happened to be there? If so, we can only speculate as to what the motive in that situation could have been. But I don't think we can rule this out. As we approach the 135th anniversary of the Mam Trasner murders, the motive for the killing remains elusive and a mystery and, I think, is always likely to remain so. To end this mini-series on the Mam Trasner murders, I want to look at the lives of some of those involved and what happened afterwards. The three informers who triggered the entire case by coming forward two days after the murders, claiming they could identify the men involved, received large amounts of money and returned to live in Mam Trasna after the trials. Of everyone involved, they were the ones despised the most by their local community. The prisoners who had testified had done so to save their lives but these three men had come forward voluntarily and it increasingly seemed that they had invented their version of events and the whole sorry affair had flowed from this. Exactly why they had done this to begin with was never clear. It seems they bore grudges against the ten men they named and it was purely coincidental that they happened to name some of those who had been there on the night in question. Even though they had police protection, it was inevitable that they would at some point face a reckoning from their local community, and when it happened, it wasn't pretty. In early 1883, the main informer, Anthony Joyce, was drinking in a pub called Boyles in Churchfield, a few miles from Mam Trasna in County Mayo. There he met an Irish-American relative of the executed Miles Joyce, who said something to him. Anthony Joyce responded by hitting the man with a whip. While five police protected him, a brawl broke out. No doubt many had waited for this moment. The police drew swords but were quickly disarmed. According to the Press Association correspondent, Anthony Joyce lost most of his nose in the fight, presumably after being struck with a sword. To conclude the story, I want to look at the lives of the surviving members of the Joyce family who were attacked that night. That is the sole survivor of the terrible massacre, Patsy Joyce and his brother Martin, who by chance had not been home that evening. Martin and Patsy did not return to live in Mam Trasna. Understandably, there were concerns for their safety and they were put in the care of the Christian brothers in Artane. When both boys left that school, they emigrated to the USA. 
Patsy sadly disappeared, perhaps wanting to leave the terrible memories he had of Ireland behind him. However, Patsy's older brother Martin, the only member of the Joyce family not present on the night in question, did return to Ireland after a time in the USA, and his family went on to play a pretty important role in 20th century Irish history. His great-grandson, Mark Joyce, has been in touch to tell me some of the family's history. So one of Martin Joyce's sons fought in the 1916 Rising with the garrison who occupied Jacob's factory. Four years later, another of the Joyce's were present at one of the key moments during the War of Independence. That's Bloody Sunday, 1920. In November 1920, the IRA assassinated several British agents in Dublin who were known as the Cairo Gang. Later that day, Dublin were playing Tipperary in a Gaelic football match and in an act of vengeance, British forces fired indiscriminately into the crowd, killing 14 people and injuring 60 in an event that became known as Bloody Sunday. Playing centre half-back for the Dublin team that day was none other than a certain Christy Joyce, the son of Martin Joyce. That brings this series on the Mamtraster murders to a close. I'm thinking of doing a similar series on the Phoenix Park murders, which happened only three months previous to the Mamtraster murders. Let me know what you think about that. I am wondering, is it too heavy to go straight into another series on murders? So you can mail me at history at irishhistorypodcast.ie and let me know what you think. Finally, folks, don't forget to check out my new campaign at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Until next time, Sloan. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.